The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello and welcome to Barron's Live Financial News Edition. I'm David Ricketts, the Asset Management Correspondent at FN in London. Today we're taking a closer look at developments in the global ETF sector. And I'm very pleased to welcome Salim Ranji, who is Global Head of ETFs and Index Investments at BlackRock, and who is also a member of BlackRock's Global Executive Committee. Um, Salim is probably one of the best placed people on the planet to provide an insight to what's going on currently in the ETF market. So I'm delighted that he's agreed to join us today. So welcome, Salim. Uh, great to see you. Thanks, David. It's uh, it's nice to see you too. It was great to meet you last year in London. Uh, I'm glad right. we could do this on video uh, this yeah. year. That's right. So, so we've only got half an hour to delve into this topic. And I want to leave some time for our audience questions at the end. So I'll jump uh, straight sure. in. Okay. Um, so we, we last caught up with you uh, back in December, which, which seems an absolute lifetime away now. Yeah. Um, at the end of last year, we spoke um, about how the ETF industry was booming and continuing to attract significant inflows. I think global assets at that point have reached an all-time high of just over 10 trillion. Um, before we get on to some of the factors that are fueling growth uh, of the sector, I wanted to touch on how ETFs have really fared over the last six months. So the situation is, is clearly very different from when we last spoke. We've got a war in Ukraine, we've got raging inflation, um, a series of interest rate hikes as well. Um, ETF assets have dipped slightly from that all-time high uh, last right. year. But I just wanted to ask you how how the products have fared, really, over the past few months during some of the most turbulent market conditions that we've seen. And are investors still turning to them in such large numbers? Yeah, it's 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 actually pretty remarkable, David. I, I mean, if you had um, given me full prescience back in December when we last met about all the events that have happened in the world and in markets um, uh, since December uh, and asked me to predict where ETF flows would be as of this date, uh, I would have been totally off. Uh, ETF flows uh, across the whole uh, industry are at about $450 billion uh, mm -hmm. as of yesterday. And just to put that in context, last year, uh, the whole year was about 1.3 trillion of inflows, which was double the levels of 2020. And so from a flow perspective, um, the outlook is really quite healthy, uh, even with all of the events that have happened. And I think that, you know, when we look at uh, prior events of volatility that have happened in the marketplace, uh, whether it's in the equity markets or in the, the bond markets, uh, what tends to happen is you have some retrenchment, but then over a period of time, it tends to be good for ETF flows because, you know, the other thing that's pretty amazing, even with the $10 trillion or just below $10 trillion levels, is that ETFs are still 4% of the total market in which we compete. And so the other 96% um, is where investors are allocating from. And, and more and more, if we continue to do our job and deliver high quality exposures at an affordable price and in an accessible way, uh, what we're finding is more and more investors are, are, are turning to ETFs as their vehicle of choice. And, and, and that's certainly been true this year. Uh, and I wouldn't have um, thought 
it would be at the levels that I just gave you if you had uh, perfectly recited to me uh, in December what was going to transpire in markets and in the world. Mm, that's right. And I know that um, you've mentioned the challenging market conditions that we're currently living in. Um, global equities are in a bear market. The S&P 500 is down more than 20% since the start of this year. So yeah. one argument we often hear against index funds is that, of course, they do well when markets are rising, you know, riding upward trajectory. But, but we're now facing the possibility of a prolonged and, and painful downturn. I just wonder what your predictions for how ETS will fare during, during this, this period where we are facing a, a prolonged downturn. You, you previously forecast, I think, that you expect ETF assets to top 15 trillion by 2025. Is that, is that target still achievable given the market conditions that we are, that we are now living through? Yeah, I think it is, uh, and 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 I have very strong conviction that that the ETF industry is going to reach that in part because of uh, the other ninety six percent that I talked about. We're still a really small part of the total ecosystem in which we're competing, and um, ETFs as a category have much much greater diversity than they might have had even five years ago, or certainly you know twenty years ago, kind of across it. And so people will tend to think about the S&P 500, and certainly that was one of our first ETFs that we launched back in the year 2000. Uh, but we, even within iShares, we've got 1,300 different ETFs and different slices of the market. Uh, and if you look across the total ETF industry, there are many thousands of choices that investors have um, to be able to invest in different segments, uh, in different substyles, in different factors, in different themes. And I think it's that diversity of choice and the diversity of platform which has really changed dramatically, um, certainly over the past five or 10 years, which uh, allows investors to be able to um, invest in very different market environments. Uh, some investors may want more um, uh, ballast from their bonds. And so they'll look to the bond ETF market, which this year is just celebrating its 20th anniversary uh, across it. Some will want to make investments on certain factors. Some will want to invest in broad-based um, market cap indices. And I think the choice and the diversity of the choice is one of the many reasons why I think we have a lot of confidence that uh, uh, that those aggressive goals are still very achievable um, for the industry as a whole. Okay. You mentioned the, 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 bond, uh, the bond market. And let's yeah. quickly a fixed income ETF. So I know that BlackRock is, is very optimistic about this particular segment of the market. And again, predictions that I think assets in this segment will grow to around 5 trillion by the end of this decade, which I think at the moment they're around about sort of 1.5, 1.7 trillion. So, yeah. so, so what's, what's going on here? Obviously, you know, this is a very challenging time for, for the bond markets, but why are investors piling into bond ETFs at the moment? What makes this segment so attractive for, for investors? Yeah, at the core of it, and, and, and the bond ETF uh, turns 20 next month. We launched mm -hmm. our first bond ETFs uh, back 20 years ago. Uh, and as you said, it's a pretty significant market, um, 1.6, $1.7 trillion, but it's still tiny. Uh, mm. You know, it's like uh, uh, 1.5% of the total bond market in which it's competing in. And I think the real reason why bond ETFs have become so popular is that they're a much more efficient, much more convenient, and much more transparent way in which to access the bond market itself. Because mm. when you think about equities, uh, it's much easier to access an individual stock. Uh, but if you think about buying an individual bond, whether you're a first-time investor or you're a very sophisticated institutional investor, it is much more antiquated than the equity markets. And I think the thing that bond ETFs have done is that they've made it much easier to access this market. 
And so the that's kind of first and foremost the foundational reason why they've done so well and why we expect them to do so well. But the other reason is that they've delivered. And so if you look at the resilience of bond market ETFs, uh, particularly, I mean, I can speak most uh, particularly to the iShares ETFs, is that they provided liquidity, they provided actionable markets, they provided kind of the transparency uh, and all the things that we said that they uh, would do and could do uh, 20 years ago, they've continued to do. And even mm -hmm. if you just look to last week, last week, um, uh, bond ETFs had set records in terms of the underlying trading volume, the underlying uh, liquidity and the underlying price discovery, um, which are all things that institutional investors in particular really care deeply about. So I, I think it's both the, the core premise, which is that it's just a better way to access the bond market, coupled with they've delivered the performance. Uh, you can go back to March 2020. You can go to last week uh, uh, in terms of it. And they're competing in this vast market, uh, uh, you know, a, a marketplace which is well over $100 trillion. And so there's a lot of opportunity for a first-time investor or a uh, very serious active uh, asset manager to be able to use bond ETFs in their portfolios. That's underpinning a lot of our excitement. Yeah, they talk there a lot about the, uh, the, the usage among the institutional investor base. I want yeah. to ask a bit, a bit about how the... The landscape has also changed when it comes to to retail uptake, retail interest. So obviously, a lot of people who are listening into this uh, session will be will be retail investors looking to, to use ETFs or perhaps already use ETFs as part of their portfolios. But I want to ask you how you've seen the um, I suppose the, the the appetite for for retail investors, among retail investors, for ETFs change over the past twelve to eighteen months. I think um, it's pretty fair to say that um, a lot of the flows that we saw into ETFs during the COVID pandemic were perhaps fueled by greater interest among retail investors. And we can talk yeah. about that in the US market, but also here in, in the European market, where we've seen a, a big focus on, on DIY investing and obviously investment platforms play a big role in, in that as well. So I wonder if you could talk about how you've seen a greater yeah, interest among retail investors. Perhaps if I could focus some of the attention on, on Europe. Um, Absolutely. I think, I think you've mentioned to me in the past that you are seeing quite significant influence from, from retail investors uh, in Europe. Yeah, and I, I think in Europe is, is probably the most dynamic environment for the retail investor today. Mm -hmm. And and I think the, the main thing that changed was uh, the advent of many more digital platforms across Europe and the advent of commission-free trading or commission-free ETF trading for some of these platforms, not all of them, but for some of them in Europe. And, and even if I can zero in, for example, just on Germany, because Germany was a, a country that had a, a terrific savings culture, but not really much of an investing culture. And if you go back three years ago, you had um, a few hundred thousand Germans, for example, investing in ETF savings plans. Um, so these would be regular savings plans where they might be putting 100 euros, 150 euros a month. Uh, and pre-pandemic, that was uh, about six, 700,000 Germans were investing in that way. At the end of last year, 5 million Germans were investing in that way. And we expect, and we published a piece on this just a, a month or two ago, that by 2026, 20 million Germans are going to be investing in this way. And so I think the combination of a, um, a, a digital or a direct platform, and there are many that have evolved all across Europe, plus the ETF, plus 
the uh, ability to marry the two with lower friction or less commission or fewer barriers has, I think, really unearthed a whole new generation of investors because the typical investor that's investing in these ETF savings plans, they're in their early 30s. As I said, they're putting you know about 100, 150 euros a month to work. Um, so regular um, savings, and they're investing in broad-based diversified indices within ETFs, either through a model or through um, a, a collection of one or two or, or, or a handful of ETFs. And I think that's a really important development, certainly for the growth of ETFs, uh, mm -hmm. which is kind of one aspect that we're focused on. But I also think it's really important because it's unlocking a whole new generation of people who might have been savers but are now also investors and from an early age, they're able to invest and participate in the growth of markets over a 10, 20, 30 year horizon. And so we think that also has really good um, societal impact and, and positive impact for the 5 million and hopefully 20 million Germans that over um, the years uh, invest more and more through these diversified, um, uh, low cost, more accessible ways. Mm. So, so I suppose it would be fair to say that you're, you're focusing a lot more attention on, on the retail segment uh, in terms of growth opportunities. Uh, you mentioned that Germany, but I suppose maybe the UK market might be might be another market that, that has potential. Yeah, I think it's I think it's in markets all across the world because the great thing yeah. about these um, digital platforms is they can travel, uh, yeah. uh, and certainly some of the platforms that started in Germany are expanding throughout Europe. There are many other comparable um, platforms that exist in the UK. Um, or even here in the U.S., where an investing culture and a, a self-directed investing culture has been thriving for, for decades now, um, even in the environment here, what we're seeing is more and more of those same investors opening up accounts for the first time, kind of the same investors meeting a 31-year-old, a 32-year-old, and more and more they're turning to ETFs. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, uh, particularly during the pandemic, there was a lot of, of really interesting narratives about meme stocks and about individual stocks kind of going up and down. But when you looked at the underlying facts about retail trading volumes, even last year in the United States, 65% of all retail trading volumes were buys of ETFs. And when you look at, and we ask our clients who will, you know, uh, run some of these digital platforms in Europe, uh, what would the top 10 holdings of a typical investor look like? Nine of those 10 holdings are ETFs. Uh, they might have an individual stock in there uh, as well. But, but what's happening is that this is really, this being the ETF is really becoming the default investment vehicle for a whole new generation of investors that are entering into the market in this way, much as the mutual fund in the 80s and 90s was, a, was the kind of the de facto investment vehicle for many investors of that generation. This is becoming a way to unlock new investment behaviors in Germany, in the UK, and also in the United States um, for a new generation of investors. And that for us is really exciting. So we're forging partnerships all across the world and, uh, and investing kind of heavily in those, you know, cause we don't, we don't do any direct business ourselves. We'll work through our clients and through these intermediary platforms to enable this to happen uh, across the world. But I, but I think it's one of the most exciting developments in, uh, in the ETF landscape. Yes, it sounds almost like a bit of a revolution when it comes to, to investment. Uh, you say unlocking this kind of way of investing for, for the masses, and I think it's um, yeah interesting. You're seeing sort of more more retail investors pile into these products. Um, just a reminder to those listening: we, we do have um, 
an option for you to send in questions. So please do do um, do send those in to to um, to me. I'll get to some of those in a moment. Um, I just want to ask a quick, quick follow-up question to you as well. Um, yeah. So you mentioned now, um, you know, that the retail investor kind of driving inflows during the pandemic. But I think another area that we've seen significant flows into ETFs is around sustainable uh, ETFs as well. I think that's been a huge a huge area for a lot of ETF um, players. You know, in terms of gathering assets. So. So just talk me through how you how you've seen flows pick up into into ESG slash sustainable yeah. ETFs over the last twelve or eighteen months as well. Yeah, and the core of our sustainable kind of ETF um, focus has really been around offering greater choice, uh, and so we expanded our lineup over the past three years to now offer um, uh, uh, you know nearly two hundred different choices across ETFs and index funds across the world, and transparency. Uh, so that you can see exactly the, the, the ESG scores and you can see exactly all the constituent parts of the, the holdings within a given ETF or within a given um, uh, exposure. Uh, and so if you look over the past year or two, uh, ESG ETFs, um, which again, uh, uh, cover a broad array from things that are screened to the things that are optimized to you know, things like carbon emissions to uh, things that are thematic, like, you know, exposures like clean energy to uh, ETFs that are investing in, in carbon transition. Mm -hmm. uh, so the movement from, you know, browner to greener uh, across different carbon emissions. So it covers a broad swath of things. And just under the broadest definition, it's kind of been between 10 and 20 percent um, of our flows over the past year or two. It's a little bit higher in Europe. It's a little bit lower in the United States, but it, the, the core of what we want to be able to offer beyond great market quality and great market integrity is if we can offer choice and we can offer transparency and we can do it at an affordable price and, and, uh, and make it more accessible, it's kind of how do we bring it to this category, much as we did you know, uh, in market cap weighted indices or in fixed income or in factors or in all sorts of other um, aspects of, of investment. So I think it's going to um, continue to evolve, continue to grow. Uh, uh, I think Europe is going to be um, um, kind of at the further end of things. I think the U.S. Uh, uh, may be uh, at the slower end of things. But but I think that's a, it's a very healthy addition, I think, to all the choice that uh, clients mm -hmm. are able to get all across the world. Okay. Um, we're, we're going to move on to, to maybe some, some innovation, uh, innovations that are taking place in, in the sector. But before I do, I've got a question here. Uh, yeah. One of our, our listeners. Uh, Steve, yeah, absolutely. He said that he's read that this. I'm not sure this is one for you or not, but, but he's read that leveraged and inverse leveraged ETFs are gaining more popularity. Um, so he wants to know what trends you're seeing in this area, and do you think there'll be more of these types of ETFs in future? Um, and also with more leveraged uh, beyond the kind of two or three times that are available today. Um, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, look, we've been public in the past, and I'm happy to reiterate it here, uh, that we are not launching any levered or inverse ETFs uh, uh, kind of within BlackRock or within iShares. Uh, uh, we've also been public kind of in the past that uh, we don't even think they should be classified as ETFs, that uh, uh, instead they're exchange-traded instruments because mm -hmm. they operate more like structured products when you look underneath it. Uh, and we think uh, ETFs should be much more around the broad-based diversified exposures um, versus things like levered and inverse uh, pieces. And, and, and so I don't have any particular commentary in terms of what, uh, we don't think they are ETFs and we're not gonna launch any. <laughs> um, 
uh, and uh, and the underlying reason for that, we don't deny that there's commercial opportunity there, but the underlying reason for that is that we want to make sure that whatever we put our name behind um, is a well-constructed, high market quality addition to a client's portfolio, uh, mm. that they can look us in the eye a year from now, three years from now, 10 years from now, and be able to say this was a good uh, investment. Now, it may go up or down. Uh, you know, we launched our S&P fund in the summer of 2000, uh, and it was followed by two years of down markets in the S&P 500. Uh, but over a 20-year period, it served investors really quite well. And, and so it's not to say everything's going to go up or go to, the markets will fluctuate. But we want to make sure the underlying quality uh, behind it is there. And, and, and we just we, we don't see that in this segment of the marketplace. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. I think on, on that topic of innovation and sort of you know, BlackRock being willing to, to launch products that it's, I suppose, proud, if you like, to put its name behind, you know, obviously yeah. products, products that they, they think will stand the test of time. I want to ask you a bit about um, crypto ETFs. And this is something that yes. has attention. Um, and obviously, as the world's largest asset manager, I think it, you know, it's understandable that people want to know what your thinking is on, on this topic. So, um, you know, the SEC is, is yet to approve a, a spot crypto ETF. So regulation right. is one hurdle. Um, but obviously, given the recent meltdown that we've seen in the crypto market, is that is that enough to put you off launching any Bitcoin ETFs or crypto products at all? I mean, what, what's your current thinking on on the crypto landscape and how BlackRock might play a role in that in the future? Yeah, I think I think you'd last asked me about this when we were together in person, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that might have been the uh, the recent high point of Bitcoin at the time. I think it was yeah. like sixty eight thousand dollars around that time, and I'd said that you know we have no uh, imminent plans to launch a spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, uh, but I think in terms of the underlying technology of blockchain, the underlying technology of blockchain I think is incredibly innovative and incredibly disruptive, uh, and. Uh, it takes out frictions. It enables kind of the easier transfer of value uh, in ways that can make markets and make um, the underlying plumbing of markets much more efficient, I think, for clients. Uh, so we were very proud to put our name behind a thematic blockchain ETF, which we'd launched uh, uh, a couple of months ago uh, to kind of sit alongside our many other thematic ETFs, which allow investors to be able to access the broad marketplace of companies that are that are behind blockchain technology, um, we announced a partnership uh, again three or four months ago with a fully reserved, um, um, you know, real stablecoin company called Circle, uh, uh, which has fared rather well uh, despite uh, many other uh, not quite stablecoins um, uh, going through the issues that they've been going through, in part because mm -hmm. of their fully reserved. Um, status in terms of having bank deposits and short-term government uh, kind of bonds backing the stablecoin. Um, and we continue to look at different pilots and different mechanisms around how to uh, experiment with tokenization technologies. Mm -hmm. And so I think the underlying technology itself is like a remarkable technology. And whether it's thematic ETFs, partnerships with uh, providers that are in it, or just pilots uh, that we're doing, those are the aspects that we're looking at. Uh, and, and look, we continue to be um, studying and looking at um, cryptocurrencies themselves, including Bitcoin, uh, around are there ways to make it easier, more accessible for investors, just as we have with the bond market, with the gold market, with other markets around the world. But we will only do it <laughs> if it can adhere to the, the, the levels of market quality 
that our clients expect of us and that our regulators expect of us kind of around it. But I think the whole history of iShares has really been about making investing more accessible and more affordable. And I think there will be a time that that can apply to um, cryptocurrencies as well. But we'll always be looking at the long-term view as opposed mm-hmm. to the short-term trade uh, around when that when that timing is right. Okay. So, so, so the, re- the kind of recent meltdown hasn't kind of put you off still kind of looking into potential uh, ways that you could offer exposure. But again, as you say, regulation is one hurdle in various yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't have any unique insight into yeah. whether Bitcoin is going to go up or down uh, yeah. in any near-term period of time. The things that we're always looking at are can we make it, can we make um, any area of investment easier, more affordable to do with our market quality standards and with our regulatory standards and the like. And so, uh, uh, as I said, we launched our S&P 500 fund into a uh, uh, what turned out to be a down market for the next two and a half years. Uh, and, and, and so the exact market timing isn't the, 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 the greater consideration. The greater consideration is can we stand behind the market quality and um, uh, be able to look our clients in the eyes <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, around uh, around the access that we're providing over a long period of time. Okay. Um, just on the topic of innovation again, now BlackRock announced, I think back in October, that you were giving some of your, your largest clients in index equity funds more of a say in, in the proxy voting. Yeah. Choice. And that's a program yeah. that you've recently extended. Voting to choice. Voting choice. So to include more, more funds and particularly in the UK uh, funds, and also I think Canada and, and Ireland as well. That's right. Um, now, there's obviously been a lot of scrutiny, particularly in the US, I think, on how much sway that large index fund providers like BlackRock and some of your competitors have on, on, on shareholder um, meetings and, and votes. Now, I understand that legislation has been has been tabled in the US to try and curtail the voting power of some of the largest asset managers. So I suppose my, my question, I think a lot of question, people will be listening into this will ask is, you know, did you see this coming? I mean, or you know, did you get the sense that, that you would be sort of, um, I suppose, targeted by by, by sort of senators who are looking to maybe curtail some of your 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 power at uh, shareholder meetings, or was it kind of you know more more from the client side who actually wanted to have more of a say in in, in the voting process? you know, we we started on the the initiative that you're mentioning, the BlackRock Voting Joys, uh, and we 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 just put out an update last week, uh, which had said that nearly half of our index assets, forty seven percent of our index assets, uh, are now eligible. Um, for voting choice. And so uh, most of those are institutional clients. So think uh, big pension funds, um, uh, DC plans, uh, 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 endowments and the like. But it's still, I, I think, a, a remarkable advance relative to the state of the industry, you know, even three years ago, because it's, um, it's half our total assets. Uh, it's pension plans representing 60 million people. It's every pension plan in the United States and something like 80% of pension plans uh, across Europe and 650 funds. And so fundamentally, the the reason why we embarked upon this three years ago was our clients had asked us, can you make it easier and more affordable uh, because they wanted to engage more um, on aspects of this voting choice. And and the actual process was long and arduous because it was a technology problem, an operational problem, and it's figuring out the right regulatory environment in different countries that could make this possible. And so it's really been a three-year journey, David. Uh, but the catalyst for the journey was very much clients saying to us, you've made the basic invest in investing easier and more affordable. Can you help us use technology to make 
this aspect uh, easier and more affordable. And what we essentially offered to clients is the ability to leverage BlackRock's infrastructure, but, but be able to vote in a way that they would choose to vote with. And, uh, you know, about 25% of clients who are eligible um, have um, decided to vote in their own way or choose off of an off-the-shelf menu. Uh, a number of other clients have said, we love the way you're doing it. We want you to continue to do it. And, and we're looking to continue to expand it out. I mean, you'd referenced a pilot that we're doing in the UK um, to try it out for individual investors to see if mm -hmm. they have any interest. Thus far, it's been largely um, institutions, in part because they have, you know, they can invest behind a stewardship team. They can, they can kind of scrutinize various votes and, and they may have their own points of view in terms of um, the way they want to vote that they've, they've been able to articulate. So I think it's a really excited development, but it's been um, sort of three years of long work, uh, and it's uh, it's been kind of led by our clients uh, asking us to do things and us trying to figure out a way in which to solve that problem for them. Okay, uh, we've only got really time for, for one more question. Only time, time is yeah. passed really, really quickly. I think uh, you know, I know you've got to stop at the half past, but I suppose my final question to really would be kind of to, to looking looking ahead. Um, where, where do you see kind of the, the biggest innovations coming in the ETF sector over the next maybe 6, 12, 18 months? I mean, we've talked a lot about what you're doing in, in terms of the proxy voting, um, right. some of the areas that you're, you're kind of launching new products, et cetera. But where, where would you see maybe the industry going in terms of uh, you know, the next innovation over the, over the short term? Yeah, well, one of the innovations that I'm most excited about, beyond all the ones we talked about, mm -hmm. uh, I love fixed income and factors and ESG, like all of those, is just the the ability of the ETF to really stretch to do more than index investing. And so particularly with the uh, introduction of the ETF rule here in the United States uh, uh, a couple of years ago, that what's happened is um, uh, a greater number of active ETFs uh, have been introduced in the marketplace. And, and I think the, the really exciting thing from where I sit is that it's really using the ETF as a technology that can not just wrap fixed income or gold or uh, S&P 500, but it can also wrap underlying uh, active investment techniques. And so what's happening is that the ETF is really just becoming the efficient vehicle of choice, whether you're an index investor, whether you're an active investor. We now have a number of BlackRock ETFs, which are actively managed ETFs alongside our iShares ETFs, but many, many other competitors even traditionally active-only firms are launching um, ETFs here in the United States. And I think that's a really exciting development for clients. I think it's a really exciting development for the ecosystem as a whole. And I think it goes to the fundamental premise that we talked about for a long time, which is the ETF is just technology. And you know, traditionally, it could wrap any rules-based, transparent um, uh, set of investments. And now it can, it can wrap any, kind of, any kinds of investments in the public markets. And I think that's, a, as I said, I think it's a win for clients. And I think it's um, uh, also a great driver of further growth. Because when you look at it, despite all the numbers we talked about, some of which were really large numbers, mm -hmm. ETFs are still 4% of the market in which we compete. And so mm -hmm. I think it's the, it opens up the other 96% uh, through the uh, expansion of what the ETF can wrap. That's right. Would you, would you, would you expect to see more? active fund managers looking to the ETF wrapper, maybe converting some of their existing mutual funds into... into yeah, some of them already have, and some of them already have quite publicly, uh, both in converting, um, uh, in some cases, index mutual funds to index ETF, in some cases, active mutual funds to active ETFs. And so 
you're having a lot of the blurring of lines <laughs> across mm-hmm. vehicles, but also across investments. And, and I think one of the things that, you know, if we're talking five years from now, uh, I think this whole um, idea of active and index, I think we'll, we'll look back on as a 20th century construct. I think mm-hmm. the ETF is blurring that because what it's enabling investors to do is focus less on the manufacturing process and more what does the exposure do for them? What kind of reward is it seeking? What kind of risk is it taking? How much does it cost? And it's just making all of that much more convenient. And so I think that's the real revolutionary aspect of the expansion of this wrapper um, because it allows us to just make it more efficient, more accessible for lots of people all around the world. Okay. Um, well, so we'll have to leave it there, but, but thank you so yeah. much for being here today and for taking part in No, uh, thank you for inviting me back. And uh, yeah, great to speak to you again. I could have asked you for another, another half an hour's worth of questions. <laughs> Hopefully we can do it next time in person, but, uh, but it was great to be on, uh, on this uh, uh, video and podcast. Thanks so much. So thanks so much, Liam, for joining. And thanks for our audience uh, for tuning in today. Um, just a quick message to those who are listening in. Uh, please join our special event tomorrow, um, Barron's Investing in Tech Virtual Summit. So the conversations will be with people behind the technology, as well as industry leaders, including Arvind Krishna, Chairman and CEO of IBM, uh, Kelly Steckelberg, CFO of Zoom, and Christopher Young, um, Executive Vice President of Microsoft, and many more names as well on that lineup. So thank you very much for for listening. Salim, thank you very much for taking part. Um, Stay safe and have a good day. Thank you. Thanks, David. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.